0: Good morning, everyone. My name is John Ray. Exceptionally glad to see you here at Grace Church this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, I'm one of the, the elders here. I get to, to oversee the teaching team, which is a phenomenal blessing for me. If, you'll, uh, if you look closely around my house, you will notice that there are strategically placed rocks in different places. Um, this is one that I... I keep on my desk, I, I'm, I'm something of a pack rat, and I'm also a, a kind of a souvenir hunter, but I realized many, many years ago that a person can only have so many sombreros and snow globes um, from traveling to different places, and uh, they take up a lot of space, so instead of bringing back kind of the kitschy traditional souvenirs, I try to really pay attention to my surroundings and oftentimes, I'll I'll bring back a rock from a place that will remind me of a of a place or an event, and they'll end up sitting on a on a desk, or this one acts as a as a book stop, a bookend on a my bookshelf. There, these rocks they bear witness. They bear witness to the particular event that I experienced, the time. the the person or the people that I was with. But at the same time, they bear witness to the continuity of time, that they were there long before I ever got there. And I dare say that that rock will be here long after I have returned to dust. And so they do two things in that, is they, they bear witness to the moment, but they also bear witness to a much longer moment. Then I'll be here. And that gives me perspective. And I dare say we all need perspective. This Sunday, as you know, as you if you were listening to the, as I was talking to the kids, is Palm Sunday. Christian churches around the world are celebrating this morning with that. And there's this little interesting part in the text that we're gonna look at today where the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to shush his disciples, trying to get them to quiet down. And Jesus' response to them is, if these people were quiet, the very stones that surround us would cry out. Those rocks, too, bore witness. They bore witness to that particular moment, but also to the unfolding cosmic eternity that was happening there. Ultimately, what we're going to come to see is that those rocks knew what the people didn't. All through Luke, we've seen as he contrasts those who see and those who don't see. And it seems this one final time as they approach Jerusalem, almost the ultimate insult is that the rocks saw what the people saw didn't. Let's pray that as we enter in this text, we will be given eyes to see. And that's what we do pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is that our eyes would be open to see you, Jesus, as we have never seen you before. And we know that that revelation cascades into how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see this world. Because we celebrate this morning, we wave our palm fronds, we wave our hands, we stand, we lift our voices, but we also know we are quite capable of cursing, of bloodlust, of crying for vengeance and crucifixion. So give us eyes to see all of it, grace to handle it, things that we would rather not see, that we feel would destroy us if we're true. And the love to stay the course. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this passage. In, in as a, it's a familiar passage, so what I'd rather do than, than showing the text is Donnie's going to show some, some images as we go through as I read this and then we'll make some comments on it. This is Luke 19, starting in verse 29. Now when he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples telling them, Go into the village ahead of you. When you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, just say the Lord needs it. So those who were sent ahead found it exactly as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and had Jesus get on. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks cloaks on the road. As he approached the road leading down from the Mount of Olives, The whole crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they keep silent... Even the very stones will cry out. Now, this is a significant turning point in our walk with Jesus and the disciples from the manger to the cross. Up until this point, repeatedly, we have seen Jesus tell, do exactly what the disciples ask, or the, the Pharisees ask him to do, which was quiet down his disciples. Time after time, there were people that he would heal that would go out and want to praise, and he would say, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. Keep it on the down low. But here, it's almost as if it just can't be contained anymore. And he lets them, even encourages them, to shout these long, pent-up praises, to declare these long, yearned-for affirmations of who he was. And in some ways we see the sight beginning to return or or be given to the disciples because in their declaration they are repeating the sound of the angels. Remember the proclamations at the manger. Remember what the angels sang in the field to the shepherds. Now these same words are being sung. These same proclamations are being made. And I wonder if that somehow informs Why Jesus said what he said. I I believe it's more than metaphor. I believe it's more than just an analogy. I, I I think in some ways these rocks had longed much longer than any of the disciples to make this proclamation. These stones of Jerusalem that had seen so much. These rocks that have watched soldiers and kings Shepherds and common people sacrifices and idolatry and finally now they see the true and forever king. Of course it's just a foretaste though of the ultimate time when Jesus does restore Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem. The final Jerusalem. That's when the praises will sing out from the rocks and the people. Indeed they will never end. But even as Jesus is Receiving this adoration, there's something going on in his heart that the people don't see. You know, I think one of the problems of being a parent is that you know too much. You know that these declarations, these affirmations that when that baby comes up and she grasps you and she says, I love you, I love you, I'm I'm always going to love you. You also know that what is coming as a teenager may not sound exactly like that. (laughs) It may be a very different declaration. Think about this. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of his disciples. He knows what's in the hearts of the people who are proclaiming his praise. He knows what's coming. Yet he doesn't quiet them. He doesn't tell them they're foolish. He doesn't rebuke them. He's not haughty. He's not dismissive. But he's also not deceived. He's not swayed away from his course. Indeed, as we see in these next few verses, he knows exactly what's coming. It says, now then, when Jesus approached and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, if you had only known on this day, even you, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and surround you and close in on you from every side. They will demolish you, you and your children within your walls. And they will not leave within you one stone on top of another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. These very stones that he declares would cry out within a generation would be reduced to rubble. So there's a lot going on in Jerusalem at this time. This is not a quiet week in Lake Wobegon, all right? (laughs) This is is the culmination of things that are happening as Jesus has been walking up. Things are coming to a head. There is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, although not in the way that most of the contemporary people would understand. There is a fulfillment of the expectation of the crowd, but again, though definitely not in the way that they expected. And there is a fulfillment of Jesus' cosmic motivations and intentions. In a way that changes the history of the universe. So let's look at these. Let's start at the first one. At Grace Church, we, we, as we gather around our table in our teaching team and as we produce the teaching guides, um, there are a number of ways to look at Scripture. There are all different kinds of hermeneutics to look at uh, uh, ways of, of interpreting And while we try to employ from a variety of sources, at grace, we lean towards a Christological hermeneutic, which is a fancy seminary way of saying, is when we look at Scripture, we put on our Jesus glasses, and we try to read everything that we read as interpreted through the life, the character, the person of Jesus. Well, they didn't have that. The people of Jerusalem at that time, they didn't have that. Most of Jesus' ministry, this, this, struck me, this struck me fresh. I know I've heard it before, but I don't know that I've ever heard it in the way. If we look at the whole story of Jesus, the whole of his ministry, a, just a small slice ever happened in Jerusalem. No more, no more than a month at the most of his life, of his entire life was spent in Jerusalem. Maybe a few, depending on how often his family traveled. But we know they were poor. They, they probably didn't make the pilgrimage every year. And Definitely within his ministry, it's a short time there. So he spent most of his time in the backwater. Jesus, in many ways, was a, was a country evangelist. He was a barnstorming miracle worker out in the backwoods of Galilee. Indeed, his followers, none of them that we know come from the the social register of Jerusalem. They were not debutantes or men of power. These were country folk in a lot of ways that followed him. And so when Jesus comes in, riding on a donkey or the the foal of a donkey, and he's got all his country hype men, you know, giving it up for Jesus as they come in, uh, I'm sure the people of Jerusalem weren't quite, they didn't quite know what to do with that. They weren't quite sure what all that meant, but hey, it was a party, so we'll jump in. And they had heard the stories, so they were anxious to see him. He had made a fuss. Listen, word had definitely got back to Jerusalem about Jesus, but they hadn't really encountered him in person all that much. So they join in with the crowds, and, and many of them maybe were thinking, and they were, res- they were thinking of the words of the prophets, well, maybe he is the one. He, hey, you know, he's, he's coming in just like Solomon did on the, on the donkey. He's, he's coming in with these shouts. Maybe this is. Maybe he's going to do it. Maybe he's going to fulfill all those things. But it surely wasn't what they expected. As we see in just a few days, they turn their cries of praise into cries of crucifixion with that. But it helps us in understanding where maybe they missed it, where also we miss it. How do we read the Old Testament? How do we read the words of the prophets? How do we understand them fulfilled? And again, I default to looking at it through the eyes of Jesus to see what he said. Because as we've, as we've seen, as we've studied, Jesus changes Scripture often. Jesus misquotes the Old Testament often in the New Testament. He reinterprets everything. And He doesn't only do that with prophecy, but He does that with the expectation of the people. The disciples, remember, they're, they've been called to follow this Jesus. They don't know who He is. Remember, when they were first called, He had done very few miracles, if any. He hadn't given any long sermons. He hadn't, written, he hadn't written books. They're just called on the force of the call. The call of his personality, of the, of the spirit that attracted them to them, and they are learning about Jesus as they go. And time and time again, we see them try to force their expectations on Jesus. Call down rain on this town. Let me sit by your right hand. Send that person away. Don't you know that's not kosher? <laughs> The disciples themselves are are always trying to conform Jesus into their image of who they think their master ought to be. And Jesus will have none of it. He does that again here as he rides in. I'm sure they thought after three years of wandering dusty roads, payoff time's coming. Right? We We left the family fishing business. We left the The tax collector booth behind, we've been away from our families, it's been a slog. We've we've had people persecute us, say bad things about us, it's been difficult. Now we get to go to the capital, and not just the capital, but man, the center of everything in the Jewish universe was in Jerusalem, and we're going to be lauded, and we're going to be celebrated, and we're going to have a party, and we're going to be the talks of the town. They come in that Must have been at least part of what they were thinking. Making such public proclamations as they did. It's not how it ends for them though, is it? Not how it ends at all. But in the end, what we see, and the most important thing, is what happens in Jerusalem and how that reflects Jesus' agenda. Because again, Scripture shows us time and time again, He's the only one that sees. Jesus is the only one who sees what's really going on. He's the only one capable of understanding. He's the only one who has that sight to see what happens. And He is fulfilling what is necessary. And it is devastating. As we ponder this week what it took for Jesus to go to the cross and what that cross meant, we come to understand that it is not so much designed to change God's mind about us, but to change our mind about God. We see that Jesus not only taught a revolutionary way of of being, but he embodied it. Jesus didn't come so much to deliver a treaty or give us a tract or leave us a book to read when we get around to it. But he invites us into this relationship to follow him and to experience what it means to be truly Human. Jesus is the only way. And He doesn't just teach us that. He shows it to us. And it cost Him His life. And so that's why we come in on a Sunday morning here and we wave palm fronds around. Because it takes us back there. It focuses us with that. And that's why as we walk through this next week, we will sit around a campfire and read the words and then walk off in silence, and why we will show up early on a Sunday morning to shout Hosannas at resurrection. is because we need this reminding. And we need to embody it. We need to do something about it. We don't need to just read it and then change the channel to something else. But we need a visceral experience of it to conform us. And this does three things. As we do this, as we participate in these times, in these seasons, in these celebrations, it focuses our imagination. If anything in our day and age, our imagination is so distorted, our imagination is so toxic, because it's ruled by the images that we see on the TV or on the billboards or hear through the podcast, through the radio, through the different things. We go about our business buying and selling, trading, and our imagination becomes clouded, constricted, cancerous. And so we need to focus our imagination on that which gives life. We need to focus our imagination on that which is true. And so, yes, we read the story, but we also participate in the story. And as we do that, things open up. And so this this week radically focuses our imagination. The other thing it does as we go through here is that it frames our reality. We constantly have the world, the flesh, and the enemy, what the Bible calls the three adversaries, trying to frame the questions in such a way where there is no out except violence. It's constantly trying to frame the questions where there is no out except to escape. To frame things in such a way where there is just hopelessness. Listen, there could be no more hopeless feeling than what the disciples were come to feel in a few days at the foot of the cross. You think your situation's hopeless? I think my situation's hopeless. Pales in comparison to what the disciples must have felt. And yet next Sunday we come to celebrate resurrection. Victory snatched from the ultimate jaws of defeat. That in turn reframes our reality So that we can see things differently. And that's the last thing that this does is that it fosters that hope in us. That hope that there is life beyond this that we know. That there is a reality beyond the challenges that we face. That there is something worth living for beyond just what we can see, taste, smell, touch, and hear. So yeah, we wave our palm fronds this Sunday. But we do it with humility as well, knowing that we need the resurrection that is coming. Um, Driving in this morning, I don't know if y'all heard it, but the sobering news was reported that this morning in Egypt, there were two churches bombed by suicide bombers So I sat here and watched y'all come in this morning thinking about what it must have been like there in Egypt as worshipers came in and were suddenly concussed with the sound of someone so full of blindness and hatred that they blew their own body up. In an attempt, in a successful attempt, at least today, to kill others. That should not diminish our worship. It should inform it, though. We get to do this, y'all, right now, right here. This week in this city, we get to do this. And we get to do it in freedom and encouraged in some ways to do it. That's not the reality for everybody. In fact, it's probably not the reality for most who follow the name of Jesus. So let's take this week Let's take this time and let Jesus do his thing among us, in us, and with us. I want to lead us through as we approach the table today. In a confession that is informed by the tragedy that has come, but not just this one, because it's It's significant because it's now, but it's not significant because it ain't new. It's been happening since the garden, really. We've been blowing each other up and, and using the justification that God gets glory from it. That's what we do. We praise on Sunday and then we kill on Monday. But Jesus has a different way. And let's see if he can form that in us this week. If you'd stand with me. We're going to alternate reading, so we'll read the first slide together. I'll read the second. We'll read the third together, and so on as we go. You'll get it. All of the italicized words we read together. Jesus, our Lord, we shout hosannas to praise you. With eager hands, we place our palms of praise on the path before you. Yet, Lord, we confess that these mouths that seek to praise you often deny or defy you. We confess that the hands that seek to serve you often become fists. We confess our praise is often empty. Just as the people of Jerusalem did long ago, we sing Hosanna, but will cry, crucify. As the crowd laid their palms in front of you, we took no glory you took no glory for yourself. Yet we confess that we crave acceptance and take the easy way. We do not stay true to your will. Forgive us, Lord, and help us to follow the way of obedience to the Father. Help us to be faithful and loving servants of Jesus our King. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up as we transition. You can have a seat as we transition to this time of communion and of taking an offering and a prayer. It's a glorious season, but it's a it's a it's also somber. If there is something that you need to do with Jesus, if there is something you need to get right with God, if there is something in your life that is hindering your ability to engage, find someone you trust and pray with them. And then come to the table. Receive the broken body and spilt blood of our Lord Jesus. Receive it in solidarity with our brothers and sisters this morning in Egypt who mourn who grieve, and yet still believe. Receive it in solidarity with everyone who is homeless and hurting this morning. Receive it also in the company of the saints, those who have gone before us, who know that intimacy with Jesus now, that right now is still yet a promise for us. But receive it humbly and receive it with gratitude. Thank you for being here this morning.